Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome, King's Church family. So glad you have joined us today from wherever you are tuning in, presumably in your home. Maybe you're driving and listening or wherever you are. I want to say a special shout out to all of our locations where we have a presence in Halifax, Charlottetown, West St. John, kind of a case Valley. We just welcome you guys in particular, but then, of course, our expanding family all over the Maritimes and even across the country and some people around the world. We welcome you wherever you are today. Be people who have been part of King's Church for a while and new people as well. We want to welcome you who have joined us over the last several months or maybe this is your first time ever. Welcome. And hey, if you are new, I want to just reiterate, you've already heard it in the, in the service today. We want you to jump into Growth Track. We're going to be connecting new people through that. If you want to find out more about our church, who we are, what we believe, you want to make sure we're not a cult or we're not going to pass out the blue Kool-Aid later, you need to check out Growth Track. It'll tell you everything you need to know about who we are, what we believe, how to get connected and take your next steps on your journey of faith. So make sure you check that out at our website or on social media. You should be able to find lots of chatter about Growth Track. Don't miss it. Okay, today, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. Put a marker in there. We'll be there in about 15 minutes. It's going to be the second half of the sermon. I'm going to do a quick Bible study in 1 Kings 18, but I want to set that up before we get there. As we continue our journey, we're calling Renew, Renew 21. We're in 21 days of prayer and fasting here in 2021. And we're asking God to do one simple thing, and it's a word that he gave us to hold on to for this year. We're asking him to renew us, to bring renewal to us, not just recovery for anything that might have been lost over the last season, but renewal that actually outgrows and outpaces and takes us into a new place of life and abundance. And we're believing that for this year, and we're pursuing that. We're hearing that call and that invitation, the promise of God, where he said it, it Jesus told us to come to him if we're weary. It says in Second Chronicles that if, if we're if we're hurting, if we turn to him, we humble ourselves, we repent, he will heal us. And so it's upon that invitation that we have been setting ourselves and we have been seeking God to do something new in this hour. And I just want to say really quick before we get into today's topic and today's teaching, can I just say how pleased and proud I am of our church and the level of hunger and maturity so many of you are showing. I have had so much positive feedback from so many of you over these last couple weeks, just saying how grateful you are for what we've been talking about and the direction that we're going and the tools that we're giving you. You're taking it and running with it. And I'll tell you what, that does my heart a whole lot of good because it shows me that we as a church are maturing, that you're learning how to take the Word of God and apply it to your life and that you're not having to be spoon-fed and babied, kind of like just low-level information. But we're, we're, dumping in, we're jumping into some deeper stuff here. And I'm just so pleased about it. I, I can almost feel like Paul felt where he's talking to the Corinthians and he said, you know what, when I first came to you, I, I just gave you milk because you were infants. I wasn't able to feed you the real meat of the word, but now you're maturing and you're growing and I'm able to serve you a real meal. And I'll tell you what, I've felt that difference even over these last few weeks as a preacher. Even though I haven't had people in the room in front of me, the feedback has been evident. It's felt very different. And those of you who are parents, you know how different it feels, you know, feeding 
feeding a one-year-old. You ever try to feed a one-year-old? What do you got to do? You got to mash their food up for them. You got to like entertain them. Who wants their peas, right? You say, open the mouth for the, open the cave for the choo-choo train. You got to do all kinds of stuff and stand on your head. And look, as a preacher, I haven't been doing that the last few weeks. I'm just giving it to you straight. And I've been so pleased to see how you have been running with it. And I just want to encourage you to keep going, taking this stuff to heart and applying it to your life. Because look, we cannot afford cheap meals, can we? We can't afford to just be entertained in church. We need to be equipped and edified and built up and changed. Amen? So the stakes are too high and God is too good for us to just stay infants. So we are jumping in today. We're continuing on. If you're hungry, if you're ready, say amen in the chat. Say I'm hungry. Say let's go. Let's jump in. We're continuing our journey in Renew. We've been talking about these things. We've been saying that here's, here's our, the way that we're going to seek renewal. We're going to renew our convictions. We're going to renew our standards and we're going to renew our expectations. And last week we talked about the convictions, renewing our convictions. And next week I'm going to talk about expectations, walking in faith. But this week I want to talk about renewing our standards, renewing our standards. The title of my message today is this, the road to renewal is paved with God's standards. The road to renewal is paved with God's standards. You know, there are a lot of truisms. You know the truism I'm I'm robbing in my title. There are a lot of truisms that we say that we aren't really sure if they're totally true. It sounds right, but we haven't really maybe proven them to be true. They don't hold quite the same weight as others. Like, you know, the two in the, or a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Well, it sounds right, but I don't, how many of us have actually had a bird in the hand and and had two in the bush? I I don't know if that's something that really hits close to home. Or maybe, maybe you've, you've heard the saying, every dog has its day. Well, maybe, I don't know. My dog hasn't had its day. My dog got sprayed by a skunk yesterday, so he's not had his day. Some, some truisms don't really carry the same weight, but some truisms that we say, I mean, you know those are gospel truth. You know those are like hashtag facts, don't you? Like never judge a book by its cover. You know that is factual, isn't it? Every one of us have wrongly assumed something. We've looked at an outward appearance, made a deduction, made a decision, about somebody or a book or a story or something, and we've concluded something that on second thought and further review, we are totally wrong. We know that saying is facts. Or what about this one? If mama ain't happy, ain't, say it in the chat, nobody happy. We, that is facts. We know that is absolutely true. Or, or it's close companion, happy wife, happy life. Yes, we know that's hashtags facts. And perhaps the truest of all truisms is that the road to ruin is paved with good intentions. We all know how true that is, don't we? Every single one of us have experienced how easy and and how common our intentions have. uh, We had good intentions. We had truly genuine good intentions. We know how common it is to have good intentions and some no noble vision, and some transformative end in mind only to end up in disappointment, destruction, failure, and futility. Every one of us knows how that feels. You might have had a relationship that you were going to work on. Maybe it was your marriage. You went to a marriage seminar. You went to the series that we did talking about for better marriage. And you, 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 you attended every week and you and your wife were saying, we're going to make this better. We've got every intention to work on our marriage. And then time passed and nothing actually happened. The road to ruin is paved with good intentions. Or maybe you had 
had a responsibility, a work deadline. You had every intention of getting it done, boss, but you just didn't, did you? The road to ruin is paved with good intention. Maybe you had a goal or a dream. You, maybe, maybe you bought a gym membership for 2021 and you had the goal of, of losing weight and you still have that intention, but you haven't actually gone to the gym yet or changed your diet. Let me tell you in advance, the road to ruin is paved with good intentions. We know that's true, don't we? Every one of us, if you lived any amount of time, you've proven that truism to be factual. It's true that in life, our goals, our aspirations, that, that intentions and implementations are two very different things, aren't they? That having good intention, but actually implementing those intentions Two very different things. And we often reap the results of having good intentions and failed implementation. In a book called Atomic Habits, an author named James Clear, it's a great book if you're looking just for some, some help on making some small changes in your life. He said this, that you do not rise to the level of your goals, you actually fall to the level of your system. It's another way, it's a, it's a new way of saying that the road to ruin is paved with good intentions. You can have all the great goals, all the great intentions set before you, but if you don't build the system and implement the system and activate the means that brings about those goals, you will ultimately experience whatever your system is built to give you. And this is what he's saying. This is so true that no matter how pure, how sincere your intentions are, you will always reap the results of your implementation. You will always reap the results of the system that you employ for your life. You are always going to live in that space. Our good intentions don't make for a good experience. It's good implementation that does that. And the reason I bring this up for us who are trying to follow Jesus is this is true in our Christian life. So many of us live in the gap between good intentions and actually having the experience of seeing transformation. A lot of us get stuck at good intention and don't actually see any transformation. And so we get stuck in this disappointing gap of you hear the call of Jesus, be transformed. I want to give you new life. I'm going to give you my peace. I'm going to put my yoke upon you that is light and easy. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you power and, and purpose and meaning. We hear that call and we say, I want that. And I have every intention to go get that. And in, in the end, we find ourselves stuck at the same old place. Like how many of us, you know, you intended to be, you know, men, you intended to be a person of character, a person of self-control, a person who doesn't look at another woman lustfully. You intended for that and yet you can't get yourself off the internet, off those websites. Or maybe, you know what, maybe you intended, ladies, you intended to be a woman who, who is settled in her identity. You know, I am who you say I am and that's enough. And yet, you know what, you can't seem to get away from Facebook and who everybody else says you are. You're addicted to it. Your intentions are pure, but your experience is another thing. We find this to be true, that so often we fall short of what we'd intended to in our Christian walk. Our problem, hear this, is never our intention. Our problem is always in implementation. And there are millions of people who believe in God, who have every intention of experiencing the life God has to give them, that have never actually experienced that life because the system they're employing and the system they're operating under doesn't provide access for God to bring transformation to them. It's not an issue of their intentions. It's not an issue of their convictions. It's an issue of the system. It's an issue of their implementation. And this 
is where standards come in. Standards are the sacred system, they're the pure practice that we implement in our lives to access the life that God offers us. That's what standards are. Standards are the space, the sacred space, the sacred system, the the pure practices in our lives that we implement that allow us to access the life that God offers us. That's what a standard is for us as Christians. You know, Webster's Dictionary might define a standard. We know what a standard is. If you say like that, that restaurant is the gold standard, what do we say? It's the bar, it's the, it's the limit, it's the border. We would say a standard, you could define it as like a designated line or level of quality. It's a, a boundary or it's a, a space of attainment. That's what a standard is in its purest you know, English definition. But for Christians, a standard ultimately is the boundary line of the sacred set-apart space that we have designated for God to operate in. And a standard is actually the way that we obtain the presence and power of God in our lives in increasing measure. It happens through setting standards, setting space. That's what standards are for. Standards are where our convictions get actuated. Standards are where convictions become consecration. It becomes a space that we set aside as holy. And when we set aside space as holy, God, who promises he will, always invades and indwells holy space. That's what he does. Now, some of you are already thinking, okay, wait, wait, wait. I thought that we already have God through faith, that Jesus died for us, and we, you know, what about grace? Don't we, aren't we forgiven? Yes, you're forgiven. You are absolutely forgiven by the grace of God and you have been given all the rights to access the kingdom of heaven. But just because you have access to the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that you've given heaven access to you. It doesn't mean that God has had access to you. Dallas Willard, who I've I've quoted a lot lately, he talks about there's a difference between being safe and being sound. And if you find a ship, you know, that gets broken and busted out in a storm and, you know, some saving ship comes along and brings it into safe harbor, which Jesus has done that for you. He found you when you were utterly lost and brought you in. He, He carried you to safety and to his salvation. But just because you've been saved doesn't mean you've been restored. It doesn't mean you've been changed and transformed. And there's a difference between being safe and being sound. And God's grace is just as capable of changing you as it is saving you. And God actually wants to access your life and bring transformation into your life now. He wants to make you like Jesus now. That's not something to experience someday when you get to heaven. We'll all be like Jesus. Jesus wants to transform your life now and make you into his image now. That is the promise. And that's what grace does. Grace isn't just some forgiveness card. Grace is the very agent that as it gets access into your life will transform you. It will flush out and push out all the sin and inadequacy and inconsistency in your life and it will replace that space with God's very DNA, power, and presence. That's the promise. That's how it works. This is what it means in James. Look what James says. Think about this for a minute. James says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will what? He will draw near to you. Now think about that for a minute. 
like God of the universe, almighty God who holds the heavens in his hands. He got all kinds of important things he could be doing with his time. And yet he promises, if you will draw near to him, he will draw near to you. What an unbelievable promise that is, that if we can just learn how to draw near to him, that God, who is life, who is freedom, who is hope, who is peace, who is healing, who is restoration, who is liberty, who is happiness, who is joy, and any other thing that you want, that you, that you long for, who is all of those things will draw near to you. That's incredible. That's the promise. But we must learn to draw near to him. There is something that you and I have to do. This isn't all on God. In fact, God already did the hard work. He already saved you when you were in your death and your sin. He already paid the ultimate price. Now he wants to work on transforming you, but he will not override your will. And you have got to learn, and I have got to learn how to submit myself to God, surrender myself to God, and draw near to Him. And this is where standards come in. This is what this is where creating this space for God to occupy comes in. Listen, you've got to understand something. God will not occupy space that is not holy. Why? Because God is holy. God is incompatible with anything that is not holy. He is incompatible with it. And the Bible makes it really clear that if you want to experience God, that it requires holiness. That to be compatible with God requires holiness. It requires standards. Hebrews 12, look what it says. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do you notice that? Make every effort. Some of you are like, well, I thought, I thought, grace, I thought grace is opposed to effort. No, grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. First Peter Look what Peter says, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. What's holiness? It's to be set apart. It's standards, godly standards. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, since we have these promises, since this is on offer to us, since God said he'd draw near to us, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. If you want more of God, you have to be more like him. If you want more, more of God, you have to be more like him. It's about compatibility. It's not that God is withholding himself from you. It's that he has to have space set apart for him to dwell in. This is the importance of standards. Standards are when we take our intentions and we convert those into implementation and we start to move things out of our lives so that God can invade and bring transformation. And let me promise you something. I'm almost done this introduction here and we're gonna jump into the, to the, to the lesson. But let me promise you this. You will never experience the life of God that he promises. You will never experience transformation until you learn how to implement the life of God. Until you learn how to implement the, this, this idea of having standards, setting apart space, accessing the means and the tools that he's given us to allow him to indwell us and transform us. I've experienced that in my life. Time and time again, having good intentions but failing in implementation. I've had to learn how to arrange my life in a certain way so that God could invade my life and transform me. One of the best examples I've heard of this, I mean, Pastor Adam, he, he's just got so many incredible, he's just a storyteller, he's an incredible communicator. And I, one of, he's one of my favorite stories 
stories about how a person who had good intentions for so long, it finally clicked for him that, look, I got to move beyond intentions and I got to get into implementation before I see some real transformation. And his story, I mean, I asked him just to take a couple minutes and talk about how he went from, you know, good intentions to implementation and changing the means and seeing transformation. Check this out. Thanks, Pastor Brent. Hey, King's Church. Pastor Brent, you're so right that good intentions, strong convictions, a tender heart towards what God is doing in us is not enough to change. It just isn't. And that's why you asked me to share a quick story today, because that was my story. I would come to church in the old-fashioned days where we came to the building, we sat in the seat, and I would hear a sermon, and most times from you, Pastor, and the conviction of me wanting to change, the tears flowing, the, the genuine intentions of wanting a new life, to leave the life of addiction, to leave the life of dysfunction, that was so real. And I would drive home and, and get in my driveway where I'm actually at right now and go in the house, tell Julie, you know, these tears are real. This, this is going to happen. I'm changed. Monday would come. Tuesday would come. And under my own power, I'd be the same old person over and over. And week after week, I would sit under strong conviction, all the right intentions, and I just couldn't change. And I remember one Sunday, I'm coming out of the service, and I'm crying, and, I'm, and I look at one of my best friends, and I say, man, I'll never be the same. And he said, Adam, you say that every week. And when he said that, I know you might feel that's kind of harsh or rough. It, something happened. And I knew he was right. I knew that I had the intentions great intentions, but it wasn't on my own power that I could change, that I needed to make a space for Jesus in my life, that I needed to rearrange the way I was living life to allow space for the Holy Spirit to come in and change me. I had to do things different. I not only needed those convictions and intentions, but I needed to turn those into actions, and I needed to take steps, and I had to take drastic measures. I had to make sacrifices out of the things I wanted to do if I wanted to follow a life of Jesus, if I wanted to be truly changed. And I know you're the same way, that we have great intentions, but it's not until we take action. Maybe you need to seek out help. You need to change the rhythm of your day. I don't know what it is for you. And I knew for me, it was a drastic change and it was years of sacrifice. And Jesus started to change me. My intentions became reality and I believe that's what God wants for us. So intentions, convictions aren't enough. It actually takes, it takes change. It takes action. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's because all of us go through that at some level. And Adam's just got a great way of articulating. And he's got that good story of having a good friend saying, hey, you, you always say that. But nothing changes. And let, let me say that to you today. Like, how long have you been saying, I want to transform, but nothing's actually changed? Maybe now is the time for you to make some shifts and to make some space in your life for God to come in and dwell. Here's what I'm convinced of. When godly sincerity is turned into godly action and godly pursuit, transformation ensues. When conviction and sincerity is converted into action, actions and implementation in pursuit, in drawing near to God, he starts to transform you and change you in ways that you could never change yourself. You could never white knuckle and change yourself or behavior modify yourself. It's not until we make those shifts and make space for God to come in that he transforms us from the inside out. It's not until we start drawing some lines and we start drawing near that God's transforming, sweet, powerful, peaceful, presence starts moving in and changing us. Standards are how and where we invite God to enter our lives 
and to change us from the inside out. That's what standards are. Okay, I spent half of my time talking about what are standards. Now I want to give you a quick case study on what it looks like to establish three standards that will absolutely change your life. If you can just get these three standards, God will invade your life this year like never before. And I'll tell you what, all of us could use a little refresher on all of these standards. So here they are. There's a bunch of scriptures we could look at. There's a bunch of Bible stories we could look at about how God takes someone who sets aside standards, who consecrates himself before the Lord and God's renewal and power comes through. We could look at Noah. We could look at Moses. We could look at Joshua. We could look at Joseph. We could look at David. Obviously, Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who is set apart as a standard. He is the ultimate standard, and he was the standard for us where we could not be. However, perhaps the most accessible vision of a, of a person who set godly standards is the person of Elijah. And it's interesting. I want to remind you today that we, sometimes we read these Old Testament prophets and even the New Testament disciples, and we think, well, they're superheroes. James actually reminds us that, that Elijah was a man just like us, and that we can do these things too. And so I want to read the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, and I want to look at how Elijah called down fire, and God brought great renewal to the people of Israel because of his actions. So it's a famous story. I'll give you a really quick backstory, and then I'm going to read it. I'm going to unpack it really quickly. I'll be fast, I promise. I'm not just getting started. I'm starting to come in. If we were on a plane, I'd be saying, we're starting our descent. You know, it takes a little bit of time, but we're on our way. So here's the deal. In 1 Kings, we find out that the children of Israel had actually absorbed the culture that was around them. They were actually a people that were called to be set apart and set apart for the purposes and presence of God. And yet we find that this iteration of their history, they are worshiping a God named Baal. And they resemble more about the culture that they live in than the culture of heaven. And that is a big problem for God. And it's, it's causing issues for them. One of them being that they're now in a three-year severe drought that had turned into full-scale famine. And this is where we pick up the story, and we find Elijah jumps before the people of God, and it says this. Elijah went before the people of God, and he said this. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him by all means. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. That's, that's a major statement of how far the people of Israel had fallen away. Get two bulls, Elijah said. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. It'll be proof. It's a test. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Let's try it. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. Let him do it. So they took the bull given them and they prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. I mean, talk about intentions. Talk about sincerity, right? They really meant this. But Baal, they called out, Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they'd made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, trash-talking them. Shout louder, he said, surely he's God, perhaps he's in deep thought, or busy, he's in the bathroom, or traveling, maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves, I mean, real sincerity. 
So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for evening sacrifice came. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Crickets from Baal. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. Take note of that which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars of water and pour it out on the offering and on the wood. Do it again and do it a third time, he ordered them. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you are Lord, you Lord are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is a famous story that it frankly moves me every time I hear it because I, I, how, mu- how many of us would love to see the people of Atlantic Canada fall down and say, the Lord, he is God. Jesus is Lord. Don't we want to see that? We want to see that. And here's the deal. You and I are the altars that God wants to burn up and call people's attention to him. And so I want to talk for a minute about what it looks like to see God consume our lives and transform our lives in such a way that really changes us and calls others to renewal as well. And there's a few principles I want to look at at how Elijah called down fire. What he did was he restored standards. Elijah did what he could do. He created sacred space for God to do what only he can do. Here's th- there are three lines. Here's the first line. I'm going to be really fast, so, so buckle up. Renewal line number one. If you want to set a standard that invites God into your space and into your life, the first place to start is this. We must restore the standard of God's word. We must restore the standard of God's word. The Holy Scripture, what God has already said what God has already spoken. We have to restore it as holy, as authoritative. If you want to experience the life and the renewal and the transformation of God, it comes first and foremost through his word. His word is the seed of his power. And unless it is given access to to the soil of your heart, no life can happen. His word must be granted access or space in order for the new life that it carries to have a chance to to grow. This is the purpose of, we don't have time to look at it, but Jesus told a parable once. He said, look, there's four types of soil. Only one of those types of soil does the Spirit actually get access to bring new life. See, we need more than just knowledge and agreement. We actually have to yield our lives and surrender our lives to the authority of what God has said. Did you notice what Elijah did? Elijah had a clear standard of God's word. The prophets of Baal didn't. Elijah, look look what happened. Did you notice in verse 26? tells us that the prophets of Baal were crying out to Baal and it says no one answered. What were they doing? They were looking for Baal to say something. Speak, speak, we need a word. Tell us what to do. 
Did you notice that Elijah wasn't looking for God to say something new? But in fact, he was leaning on what God had already said. Did you notice that? He wasn't asking God to give him some new wisdom. He was basing everything off what God had already said. He trusted what God had already said. Look at, look at, look in the verse. It says in 31, it says that he took 12 stones and he assembled an altar and he did it in the name of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come. It says at the time of sacrifice, it talks about how he arranged this according to how God had already instructed. Like he was just doing what God had told him to do at the time and the place and in the way that God had told him to do it. He already knew that in Exodus, it tells him how to do a, a forgiveness offering and to take the bull and how to prepare it. He, he was just following what the word of God had already told him to do. He, now listen too, here's, here's another important point. Don't miss this. In a time of drought, it might not have seemed like a very good time to be cutting up the last two bulls left in Israel and to be pouring the last vats of water on a sacrifice. And yet he wasn't going on his own logic. He wasn't going on what made sense in a famine. He was going on what God had already instructed. Hey, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. I'm gonna yield myself to what you have said. The fire of God fell because Elijah had first and foremost established God's word as holy. He obeyed and surrendered to God's word. He wasn't looking for God or Baal or anyone else to say something new. Elijah was looking to what God had already said. I wonder how much of our lives would change if we looked to what God had already said and just did it. I wonder how many things would shift if we just went off of what God had already said. But most of us, we get caught up like the people looking for new ideas and new ways and new things to say. I wonder if what God has already said is inadequate to bring you to life and transformation. It's time, I believe, for the people of God to draw a hard line and set the standard of God's word. Whose word is your standard? Let me say that. Whose word is authoritative in your life? Is it the doctor? Is it the government? Is it your spouse? Is it the police? Is it you? Is it your friends? Is it some author? Is it some, some, some lawyer? I don't know. Who, whose word is, is authoritative in your life? Elijah lived in a time where the mainstream culture and the people of God had absolutely lost the standard of God's word. They desecrated it. That God's word was just one word among many. Did you notice what the competition was built on? Hey, let's see who really is God. They weren't sure. That's not so different from our day, is it? I mean, how does, how does mainstream culture treat the word of God now? Well, some people would see it as optional. Yeah, you know what? Jesus does have some really cool things to say about life. It's, yeah, it's great. Some people would see it as outdated, you know, archaic. Some people would see it as obsolete that, you know what, we're going to, we just have to reject the whole thing. It, that, that was good in its time, but it doesn't really apply to us now. And now increasingly so, I don't know if you picked up on this, but more people than ever are finding this word offensive. You can't say that. You can't believe that. What this says is wrong according to our culture. And here's the crazy thing. I wonder how much of the church is being affected more by this than by this. 
more by the culture that we live in than by what God has said. I wonder if we yield ourselves more to cultural influences than we think we do. And I wonder if God is in, in this hour drawing a line and saying, I'm moving forward with my church who will say, look, my word is a lamp to your feet and you must yield yourself to it. It doesn't matter if culture is congruent with it. It doesn't matter if it's PC. It doesn't matter if it's going to offend people. My word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and you need to yield yourself to it, get yourself behind it, stand on it, or perish. And I've seen, man, I've seen, look, you look at, you look at every dying church out there. Every dying church, you'll, you'll find at its root, they started to lose the standard of God's word. It no longer was authoritative. And you look at every dying Christian out there, every Christian whose faith has shriveled up, they got loose on this. They started to say, eh, well, maybe I'll just leave that part out. Or maybe that doesn't mean what it means anymore. Or maybe we'll just ignore that part. Or maybe it's just downright offensive and I'm just, I'm just that's usually the, prog- the progression. You notice that? Every person, every church that's, every church is closing its doors at its root has gotten loose on the word of God. We have to draw a line and set a standard that says, you know what? Your word is the ultimate authority in my life. What you say goes. If you say up, I'm going up. If you say down, I'm going down. If you say go here, I'm going there. If you say this is the way, walk in it, I'm going that way. We have got to recover that church. We've got to see this as holy. This is the way. This is the truth. This is the logos. And what God has already said is sufficient. It's sufficient. I went through a season of my life back in uh, a couple years in the ministry, a couple years out of university. I started just reading a lot of crazy, like really out there theologians. And I got to the point where I was really questioning whether I could even trust the Bible. I don't know, some of you are going through that right now. You know, is this authoritative? Is it true? Does it contradict itself? And I started slowly feeling myself loosen up. And you know what happened? I found the life of God was getting sucked out of me. And I had to make a decision uh, near the end of that season where I just decided, you know what? I keep deconstructing my faith and I've been deconstructing something that I'm never supposed to touch. And there's life when I just decided, I yielded and I said, you know what? I'm just gonna believe that this word is true. It's authoritative. It means what it says and I'm gonna come under it. And I just started to even, like that old song I was taught, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and that's good enough. And I think we need to recover this as authoritative. That's the first line we need to draw. We need to recover what it says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On it he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. His leaf does not wither. He bears fruit in his season. In all he does, he prospers. This is the way of life. This is the words of truth. This is the authority. Whose word is your authority? Draw that line. The second thing is close to it. I'm almost done. We're, we're, we're Buckle up. We're coming in the land. Put your seat backs up. Put your tray table. Remember when people used to fly? That was fun. Number two, renewal. Line number two. Draw this line. So draw the line. Set a standard. God's word for me. And here's the second thing. We must restore the standard of God's way. I think it's important that you notice that Elijah wasn't just a hearer of the word. He, he actually implemented it. He actually followed the prescribed way to do a sacrifice. Like he, he was following the way that he knew God had commanded him to do. This is why Jesus said, look, he who hears my word and puts it into practice is like a man who built his house on a rock. 
It's those who actually practice. It's, this is where intentions really meet the road of actions. This is the, where the rubber meets the road. Elijah understood that. Did you notice what he did? He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Do you know what happens over time? I don't know if you've found this in your life. I've found it in mine. But my standards don't hold themselves up on their own. In fact, I find they, they drop over time. Just through time, maybe life, maybe influences, maybe interests, maybe distractions. I don't know what it is, but I find that I don't drift towards my standards going up. I drift towards my standards going down. And I find that in my faith as well. Elijah did something so profound and so important, and it's a clue to us. He repaired the altar. He repaired the things. He he reset something that should never have been stopped. He rebuilt something that should never have been taken apart. And it's all too easy for us, if given enough time and circumstance and influence, to find ourselves letting go of standards that we should never have let go of, letting go of practices that we should never have stopped doing, crossing lines that we never dreamed we'd cross. Like, Like, how does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. We change the goal line. We let the standards drop. Elijah reset the old standards. That, that just speaks to me. You know, I, I think about my grandmother, Ingersoll. I, I had a hard time, you know. I, I had some time. I really had to reverse engineer, like growing up in the holiness movement. My grandmother was a leader in that. My, my grandfather was a superintendent of a region and a real, real, you know, ambassador for the holiness movement. I'm really proud of their legacy. But I had to kind of untangle some things that I did not understand when I, I, was, I was younger. And I thought it was like legalism and man, you guys are so religious. But you know what I've found out the older I've gotten? And after I kind of maybe didn't do some of the things my grandmother would do, I I found out my grandmother wasn't religious. God rest her soul. My grandmother was devoted. And those are two very different things. And there were things that my grandmother always did. She always prayed. She always read her Bible. She always went to church. She always gave her tithe. She always did those things. And she worked to maintain those things. And there were things that she would never do. And I looked at her at different seasons of my life and I thought, ah, oh, man, you're too rigid. And yet I've lived long enough now and maybe chintzed out on some standards in my life and found out, you know what? The fruit of lowering your standards is never the reward of fruitfulness. In fact, holding your standards is what gives great fruitfulness. I found that to be true. I remember hearing this quote by G.K. Chesterton, also another, another dead guy who's a legend that we should listen to. He said, don't ever take a fence down until you know why it was put up in the first place. We live in a time where we take down anything that looks like a fence, don't we? We're offended by a fence, we hate them. It's, it's constricting. It's, it's holding me back. It's oppressive. I don't feel safe. It's a label. Maybe, maybe there's some wisdom in the old altars. Maybe there's some wisdom in the simple ways of practicing the faith. Maybe there's some wisdom in people who have gone before us saying, you know what? Whether you can gather in person or not, do not miss Sunday. You can't afford to press pause on your faith until the pandemic's over. Every Sunday, give it to the Lord. In the morning when you wake up, try to make your first thought him. Try to make your first word out to him. Never miss a day when you pray. Never miss a day when you read the Bible. Maybe they knew something we didn't. Maybe they knew something about devotion and what it means to live a life of consecration that allows God to indwell it. 
Never take a fence down until you know why it's been put up in the first place. Elijah reestablished a practice that should never have been undone in the first place. He recovered lost practices. And I wonder if this isn't a time, you know, it might look different in our day. We have technology, we have ways that we're connected that, you know, my grandmother or my great-grandparents or people that have long gone since don't have. There are different ways that we can be Christian today that they couldn't. However, I think the same principles have to apply. What does devotion look like for us? God is after devotion, not just submission to his word, but devotion to his way. God, I will do what you tell me to do. I will practice what you tell me to practice because I believe when I walk in this, life is a result. Let me ask you a question. And this might be a probing question just as I'm about to wrap up. What lines have you crossed that at another time in your life when you might say you were newer with God or maybe closer to God, you never would have crossed? Or what have you stopped doing that when you first fell in love with Jesus, you did naturally? I always tell people when they first find Jesus and they're on fire, I love having those conversations. Back when we could gather in person, I'd see that person who like they're, they're four weeks into this new romance with Jesus and they're just on fire. You know what I tell every one of them? Mark down the things that come naturally for you right now. Mark down the things that you're doing for Jesus naturally. Set a little watermark. And mark down the things that you aren't doing because you know it offends God's heart. Set that as a watermark too. Because there's going to come a time where it feels like your passion is waning. It doesn't mean that the standard needs to change. Where are your standards? What are some things you stopped doing? What are some things you've started doing that in the past you never would have done? And let me ask you a further question. What changed? Did God change? Did his word change? Or did you change? And let me ask you a third question. Are you changing for the better? Here's the last line of renewal. So here's the deal. We must draw a line that says we need to set God's word as a standard. We need to set God's way as a standard. And here's the final thought. We need to set God's will as a standard. We must restore the standard of God's will. You know, God isn't just a God who has spoken. He's not just a God who's given us the scripture and, and, and Jesus has taught us all the ways we need to, to live and follow him. He's already taught us, like where he says, take my yoke upon me, learn from me. He's already showed us the things. If we would just do what he said he, would, he told us to do, we'd be, we'd be doing really well. But God isn't just a God who's spoken. God is a God who speaks. He's actively speaking to those of us who will listen. He'll never contradict what he said. So those of you who come to me and say, you know what, I think, I think my, that God's telling me I need to divorce my husband because I want to start dating this other guy. God didn't say that. Right? God would never contradict his word. But God is a God who speaks and he speaks new things. He speaks specific instruction to his people who are willing to listen. And did you notice, I, I ever ask the question, like how did Elijah know to like set this showdown up on Mount Carmel, that if he just did that, God was gonna bring fire from heaven and everyone's gonna turn back to God. It's not, it's not in the Old Testament scriptures, not in the Torah. It doesn't say anywhere, you know, thou shalt in times of uh, when the nation abandons their God, climbeth Mount Carmel and establish an altar and I will consumeth it. It doesn't say that in the Old Testament. There was no clear command. So the question is, how, how did Elijah know to go do this? Well, I'll tell you. It says it in verse one of chapter 18. Look what it said. It says, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. 
It's important to notice, it was three years Elijah was still listening. Look what happened. God said, go and present yourself to Ahab and I'll send rain on the land. And here's, here's the most profound, this is going to blow your mind. Here's the secret. He went and did it. God said, go. And it says, so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. He just was listening and he followed God's direction. Simple obedience, making yourself available and obeying what God says will change everything in your life. Just quickly saying, God, if you say it, I'll do it. Here I am, I'm your servant, I'm listening. Simple obedience is the ultimate predictor of the kingdom life and having its full effect in your life. Like if you and I will just start obeying God and listening to God, and here's the crazy thing, the more you listen, the more you hear. The more you listen to God's instruction, the more you hear. It's like the more you yield yourself to what the Spirit is saying, the more kingdom life flows and and goes in and through you. This is why Jesus said, "You you know what the only unforgivable sin is? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? It means you are rejecting and ignoring the whisper, the presence of God in your life. You are cutting off the very presence of life itself. But on the contrary, those of us who will listen and yield and obey to God's will and his, his whisper, we see life continue to grow and transform us. This is how it works. This is how Elijah knew. He, he was listening and he simply obeyed. Now, I want to just throw this challenge out to you. You know, what has God asked you to do that you know he's asked you to do and you haven't done it? Here's here's my simple admonition to you as I wrap up. Go do it. Go do it. Stop being disobedient. Stop being slothful. Stop waiting. Stop, you know, how how many of us in church say, yeah, you know what, I'm I'm still wrestling through that. Why? If God said it, go do it. If God said, stop it, let's, let's stop it. Let's, let's put, the, put the, the, the things in place so that we can actually help ourselves have victory by his grace. Simple obedience reaps ultimate transformation. When you do what God asks, it, it's a landing space for God to indwell you. It's, a, it's an invitation for grace in your life when you obey what God has said. Look, some of us wonder why we haven't changed. It's because we haven't, got, we haven't invited God into our lives. Standards, setting these standards does that. Here's, here's three questions, and I'm going to pray for us. Three lines worth drawing. Number one, draw a line. Consecrate his word. Here's the question. How do you treat God's word? Is it something holy to be heeded, or is it optional, outdated, obsolete, offensive? If it is those things, repent. Draw a line. Set a standard. Recover God's word as holy. Like declare this over yourself today. I will treat God's word as holy. Draw a line and say, Jesus, Jesus' word is my standard. What he says goes. He is the ultimate source of truth. Not the news, not popular opinion, not what's politically correct. What he says goes. Draw that line. Second, second thing, consecrate his way. What fences have you taken down? What lines have you crossed that you need to reestablish? What do you need to start doing always in an effort to arrange your life for God's power, presence, and purpose to dwell? 
draw a line. Jesus's ways are my standards. Final thought, consecrate his will. What simple or great thing has God asked you to do that you haven't simply obeyed? Do it. Just do it. Do it right now. Draw a line. I will follow his will. I'm just going to endeavor to be obedient. Now, let me just put this out there. You're not going to be perfect in this. God wants our effort. God wants us to pursue him. And you know what? John tells us if any of us stumble, there is grace. There is grace. God will pick you up. Try again, but aim your life at following him. Set apart yourself so that he can invade your space and bring transformation to you. Let's pray our prayer. Here it is, Psalm 51. We've been praying this. Pray it with me wherever you are. Let's make, let's make this our invitation right now. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice that? A willing spirit. What's that mean? It means, it means a yielded spirit. It means a what you say goes spirit. It means a yes, Lord, I will spirit. A spirit where God's will, God's way, and God's word is the standard. Love you, church.